ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. So we're hot, live and hot with Jack Harrison, man. I don't know what it is about your name, dude, that it makes, I want to say Jackson Harris every single time I look, I don't know why I do that. <laughs> and I got it out. Uh, that's funny. I got it out accurately. So I was like, dude, if I say this on the air, I'm be so, uh, so embarrassed, but welcome, man. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're, uh, we're in season here in California and you're out there chasing, uh, chasing the blacktail. So I appreciate you breaking from that man to sit down with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm real stoked that you had me on and, um, yeah, it's been, it is, we're right in the middle of archery season right now here in a zone. And, uh, between that and work, it's, it's been real busy. Um, I've been out hunting quite a bit and, uh, it's been a tough season so far for me. Um, you know, I, this year we've got a pretty severe drought as I, you know, I, I'm sure you're aware entire West and, uh, this is one of the first years that I can remember in this, in one of the spots I hunt kind of, you know, an hour or so away from my house that I can go to often, um, that we haven't had a pretty heavy mass crop in the tan oaks and in the area I hunt is predominantly tan oak forest. And so when those tan oaks aren't producing, it's like a desert for deer in the middle of the summer. It's just not a productive habitat for them. And so, Unfortunately, right now, uh, I've been having a heck of a time just cutting sign. Uh, I've been sitting, I've been still hunting, I've been busting my butt. And uh, normally I'm getting encounters with bucks, you know, fairly regularly, you know, every couple hunts and uh, certainly not shots, but. I haven't been able to turn up a buck and I haven't even gotten a trail camera picture of a buck since 
June 6th. Oh, wow. Um, so it's, yeah, it's got me a little miffed. Uh, I think they're probably in an air in, in an area that's got a little more browse somewhere in the forest with a little earlier succession rather than this mature tan oak mixed redwood forest. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it will heat up. They'll, they'll be, they'll come around and, um, you know, I just sort of been feeling the pulse out there. I'll, I'll get out there after work and, uh, after teaching classes and, and spend an afternoon and, I like to sit in a tree stand. It's so loud to, to walk around out there. And a lot of times the bucks I'm hunting, they don't, they don't use the roads, the dirt roads that are out there. They really avoid those open spaces. And so a big part of what I do is a lot of tree stand hunting. I do a lot of pre-scouting, you know, I, I scout like a maniac. It's, um, it's what I love to do for fun. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of that, you know, tracking, scouting, being in the woods. It's just, it's what I love to spend my free time doing. And, and I'm, I'm really obsessed with deer. Um, and I'm also really obsessed with pigs and, and, uh, a little bit, uh, intrigued with mountain lions. And so I, I do a lot of, uh, I run a lot of, tra- not a lot of trail cameras. I got, you know, maybe 15, 16. And, um, I love going out there and checking those and moving them around. I'm a big tracker. So I, I uh, I love going out there and, and checking in on the tracks. And so Anyways, yeah, I spend a lot of time out there. I like to sit tree stands. I'm a I'm a mobile guy. I, I use a lone wolf tree stand. I like to move around quite so a bit. That's a self climber. Um, uh, that's a that's a not a it's not a climber. It's a uh, it's got sticks. It's just a lighter weight like aluminum tree stand that you got. You know, I like to use three sticks. I hang real low to the ground, um, and uh, I just used it because if I'm fidgeting. I'm not going to make a bunch of noise because mm-hmm. the tan oak is so loud. You know, like the other evening I was sitting and there was like a bunch of squirrels cruising around together, which I'd never seen a bunch of gray squirrels. There was like maybe 10 or 11 of them. And it, I thought that was a buck down in the drainage. Turns out it was some squirrels. <laughs> and, uh, that's, that's how loud it is out there. Uh, so it's a blessing because a big part of my tactic is, is a little bit like Marco Polo. You know, mm-hmm. I, I go sit out there and I listen for the deer. And when I hear deer over on the other hillside, or if I hear deer movement down there in the, in the bottoms, then I'll get a little bit closer with my goal being to sort of locate the bedding area that they're using. Um, and then just kind of hone in on, on a buck that's utilizing that area. Uh, so, you know, I'd be lying if I said, I didn't know most of the deer out there. It's a big area. It's private land, you know, it's, it's a 600 acres. So, it's a large area, but, um, very remote, but I, you know, running cameras all the time and tracking, I, uh, I get to see a lot of the deer out there and have watched them grow up. And anyways, it's been a tough season, man. I, I, uh, I've been, you know, it's mental. A lot of it's like survival for me. And I think my background in survival helps me when it comes to hunting these days on bucks, especially in the timber. Um, because I'm not seeing deer, very often. And a lot of it is you just have to believe that you're, you're going to put, you put in the work and that you're going to reap the benefits eventually. And that you just got to, you got to just stay calm, stay put. Uh, you know, you got to take every, every time you enter the forest, you got to work on your scent control before you leave. You can't get sloppy. Um, it's the big mental game. Discipline is a big factor for me personally. Um, you know, but it's not a real high quality spot that I hunt. It's just a area close to home. And, you know, um, I love it. It's, so it's a little atypical for a, you know, what we would 
we classify as a Western hunter, right? I, and, and I shouldn't say atypical, right? There's a lot fewer guys hunting tree stand out West than, um, you know, that are, um, is it that? Yeah, I would say blacktail. I mean, where I got the tree stand from, and I agree with you where I got the tree stand from was from my friends up in Oregon mm-hmm. and they're hardcore blacktail hunters and they live in the trees. Um, and there's a lot of blacktail hunters that hunt cuts and it depends how you're hunting. And I'm, I hunt with traditional archery equipment just cause I, I love, I love it. Um, and it's just what I grew up doing. And I think that's part of why I'm in a tree stand, you know, cause I, I gotta get close. And in that loud can oak forest, oh, dude. me, I, I like to think I'm a good stalker, but dude, nobody can walk you know. on eight to eight to 10 inches of oak leaves and not sound like you're setting off. Of, what are those things? Uh, bang snaps. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. You know. I know. So yeah. And then I agree with you, you know, glass, I'd much prefer glassing and just, I just, for me to get down to some of the public spots right now, there's a, there's a big fire that kicked off down there in Los Padres national forest. And, um, it's just been tough the last few years. A lot of the areas have been getting shut down as I'm yeah. sure you're aware of. And, oh yeah, buddy. Um, it's just hard to keep, keep, keep track of where you can go, when you can go somewhere. And, and it's frankly kind of dangerous at some, at certain times with this lightning storm that, was was uh or thunderstorm and lightning that was recently forecasted you know i had an opportunity to go down to some public and and i decided against it because i would have been out of cell service and had a if lightning storm did come through i would have had a high probability of of potentially getting stuck out there and being a liability for um some of the first the, the emergency personnel out there and the first responders yeah yeah this was the first year that in in years man that i didn't pull that a zone tag uh, and and Two primary reasons for me. One, last year, the pigs just blew up. They exploded in my area. And, uh, man, bucks that I've been seeing for two, three years, they just disappeared. They were gone. Um, And then, man, it was just so... I'm just tired of the heat. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to just say it, dude. I can relate. uh, So I'm, I'm... so in that A zone, I'm more central A zone, closer to the five. And then I am, you know, central California, you know, coming up, making that four, four and a half hour drive. I'm 115 degrees. And yeah. it is, dude, the last couple of years just kicked my butt. Um, yeah. And this year, man, looking at it, and we did some long range stuff this year. So I, you know, I really wanted to pull a rifle tag um, because of that. So I just opted out of A zone this year. I kind of, it's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of a knife to the back of myself because I'm missing this early season, right? Where else in the country does it, does season start this early and then run through. If you tie it into another tag, you're hunting into November. So it's just, uh, I don't know. It's a double-edged sword for me thus far, man. It's, uh, yeah. I'm missing it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it can be pretty good country for, for a guy that likes to, to shoot, you know, a rifle hunter. And especially if you can reach out there and you, and you enjoy the discipline of longer range shooting, um, and you're good at it, you know, air, certain areas in a zone can, can really be set up for that. If you can capitalize yeah. on those opportunities. Uh, but that heat is no joke. Oh, um, dude. and just getting a deer out of there is, uh, is, a logistical nightmare sometimes. Oh, it's, a run. Um, it's a, it's an absolute sprint from, animal found to 
on ice. I mean, it is, yeah. it's no joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's, it can be quite the headache. And, um, I know for me, that's a big limiting factor. You know, I, I, I love to be able to go hunt after work, but if I have to get up at six 30 the next morning and, and be, you know, teaching a course, I, uh, I can't be running an arrow through a deer and, and, uh, if, cause if I don't find that deer that night, or if I, if I can't, you know, I gotta, I gotta get that thing cooled off and taken care of that night. Yep. Cause the next day is going to be so hot that I can't hang it. Like I just, I'm not set up, you know, I, I could stick it in a freezer, but you know, that's a real pain in the butt to mm-hmm. dethaw, bone it out, do all that stuff. So yeah, a zone comes with its unique set of challenges and, and, and the blessing there is opportunity. Um, and yeah, for me, that's, that's what I enjoy, but, but it's also just what's close to home for me. And, and, um, so, you know, as a traditional archer, I just have to be out there. Like it takes me so long to fill my tags that <laughs> I just get archery only tags for the most part. Right. And I'm just trying to get the longest season possible, possible. because I need the most encounters and I need to be able to screw up as many possible close encounters as I can so that I can <laughs> fill my tags. <laughs> and that, that's I, the, that's I, the honesty. I mean, honestly, the, and that's been my, kind of my mindset for years is I want the most time in the woods and it's not necessarily about notching the tag, but we wait all year, right? You know, nine, 10, 11 months. And to go out there and, and look at, you know, this premier tag, right? Get an X nine yeah. tag and have a three week season. And it just doesn't make sense to me. To me, it's about, you know, the time spent and yes, a, a cliche, right? But notching the tag is a plus. Yeah, I want to fill the freezer, but man, I want, I want that June, July start. And then if you do the tags right, uh, you're hunting until December 31st. You can't beat that. You know what I mean? No, so you it's, can't. It, it, it's unreal yeah. to be able to be in the woods for four months. If you want to be selective, be selective. Uh, and, and here, man, we don't have the numbers, but we do have quality. It just takes longer to get on them. So extending that season allows that allows you to be a bit more selective, man. And again, you know, just having that extended time out there. So I'm only waiting eight months instead of 10 is just, man, there's, there's no way that anyone could convince me that a X zone tag is worth three weeks and that's it. It's crazy. Yeah. And you bring up a good point that ties into what we'll talk about here eventually. And and that's just like being able to spend time in a place and learn it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of newer hunters and sometimes like old timer hunters, like I think sometimes that's something folks miss, especially when we're talking about draw tags and, and I can only really speak on California because that's just where I I put in for other States and, and I, uh, you know, I do go, uh, I will go out of state to hunt. Absolutely. But, um, the thing with those draw tags and I, this really hit me this year cause I've been saving points, uh, for the last several years. And I just got to the point where I was like, man, should I be my buddy drew devil's garden, a couple archery tag a couple years ago. He had a pretty good hunt, but it wasn't, he said, he's like, man, it wasn't, such a good hunt that it was worth 16, seven, 16 points right. or whatever it took to draw. It's and, crazy. uh, it's really weather dependent. And, and he said, 
uh, for a lot of folks, if you can, you could get that over the counter unit and just pick a place and go to it. And maybe that first year you don't see those old bucks, but then with time you develop that experience and you just get to know all the animals out there Mm -hmm. just like the predators would. And so you get to know all of them and eventually you're just another predator in that landscape. And the more time you're out there, the more likely you're going to see that buck, that old buck make slip up and make a mistake. Yeah. And, uh, and I think the problem with a lot of the draw tags is like guys will, uh, show up thinking, well, this took X amount of points to draw. So the quality should be certain, you know, this Uh why good, but reality is, is it's based off of how connect, how well, you know, that landscape and and maybe you've never been there before. You spent like a week scouting. Um, and you, you know, you just don't know what those deer are doing all the time. Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't know what their lives are like, you know what I mean? Or, Or you're not, you're the insight into their life isn't there. Um, so it's a good point you bring up. So man, let's rewind a little bit and why don't you, uh, let folks know who you are and, um, you know, who Jack Harris is Harrison is and and what you're about. And then, uh, we'll go from there, man. We'll get into the, uh, the primary topic here. Cool. So my name's Jack Harrison. I am a wilderness survival instructor. Uh, I live in Santa Cruz, California, Although I've lived all over the United States, um, I've been teaching wilderness survival professionally since 2007. Uh, I I teach a wide variety of different students. Um, I've worked with first responders, law enforcement, military, um, as well as you know some celebrities. Uh, just a wide variety of different user demographics and students, uh, mostly adults. Although during the summer I do work with, uh, kids as school's out. And I, you know, that's a small part of my job every, every summer is getting some kids outside. Um, and what I teach is I teach, I teach wilderness survival and, uh, what wilderness survival to me is, is learning how to procure your biological survival needs or the things you need to stay alive in the environment that you're in. And in most cases, you're going to, you know, that word wilderness means we're out in nature, uh, typically in a remote setting, although statistically most survival situations where people get lost and need to be rescued, you know, happen relatively close to home. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of state parks, a lot of open space, um, and we can get into that later. Uh, but I've been doing this a really long time. I'm 33 years old. I started teaching when I was, uh, I technically taught my first class as a teenager and was already an assistant. I've been, I've been doing, I've been in the woods practicing this stuff, uh, just obsessed with everything from tracking to flint napping to hardcore wilderness survival, utilizing all the modern equipment to primitive wilderness survival, tanning hides, like you name it. When it comes to living in nature. Uh, it's been an obsession of mine since I was really young and still to this day, it's just what I'm most passionate about more so than hunting more so than anything. Um, ultimately that's just what I love. And, and I am an instructor and I do teach a lot of people. Um, and most of what I teach is, is fairly what I would consider basic skills, you know, how to build a shelter, um, how to make fire, how to be prepared, what to do if you do get lost, um, stuff like that, how to disinfect water, mitigate risk, uh, all of those types of things. Um, but I do also run courses that are a lot more advanced, 
you know, spending one to multiple nights out in the woods with little to no gear, um, utilizing the skills that I teach. Uh, so I, I do try and get my students out there uh, learning via experience rather than just like listening to me talk or, or just a one day class. I, I think that now more than ever, and specifically with survival, that experiential knowledge is really important. Um, and, and, you know, we can get into like strategies of how, how folks can kind of like increase their, um, efficiency in, in the case of an emergency situation when it comes to whatever it is, say lighting a fire or building a shelter or staying calm. And ultimately I, I teach to a wide variety of folks. I've been doing a really long time. I'm really passionate about it. I'm a, uh, certified level three, uh, track and sign, um, tracker through cyber tracker, which is a, a tracking certification system here in North America. Um, that came from Africa with, from the son Bushman. And, uh, so I know a lot about, you know, identifying different marks on the ground. Um, and, uh, yeah, when it comes to nature, man, I, I love it all and I'm super passionate about it. So, <sighs> I want to tie it into hunting, right? But but first, and we kind of, I, I told you earlier, I want to separate what in my head, there's three areas, right? Bushcraft, the survival, and then woodsmanship. So if you could just go through and briefly give us the little, you know, what each one of those is. Um, Cause I think there's confusion or people co-mingle them to, uh, and make the assumption that they are to a point one in the same. Um, and they all yes. have their different nuances. So if you can take us down that path for a minute. For sure. So that that is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. It's something that I've observed is just folks confusing that, uh, those terms. And those are all very different things. Um, so survival is like I said, defined by me, the way I define it is, is the ability to 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 take care of or handle or procure or address your biological needs in any situation. Mm -hmm. So Life. that could be right now, right? That could Life just be what you're doing right now, you know, and uh, it could be in a fallen down collapsed building. It could be in an earthquake. It could be in a wildfire. It could be in a wilderness setting. It could be uh, a, a wide variety of different scenarios, but it's the ability to take, to keep yourself alive mm -hmm. and, and survival is really, that's what it is. It's raw. And that's what you, your, your goal is to stay alive. Now, bushcraft is sort of spawned out of, um, what I think of when I hear the word bushcraft is just creating things from nature, uh, being creative. And, and what I, what I think of in bushcraft is like, uh, I don't, I don't confuse bushcraft with survival. I think being very well versed in bushcraft could aid to it will definitely help you in right. survival. Just like being a great jujitsu player would really help you in an MMA fight, but you could still win being a boxer or a kickboxer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it'll help you, but it's not essential. Uh, and what bushcraft is, is basically like, you know, I, I make some jokes about it. I don't, I don't mean to rip on it cause I, I definitely <laughs> do a lot of it, but it's, you know, it's like you know, carving feather sticks and making, you know, crazy shelters out of logs. And it's, it's, there's no conservation of energy concern in the field of bushcraft. It's, you're not worried about staying alive. You're taking unnecessary risks by cutting down trees or chopping logs or utilizing, you know, axes, saws, 
But bushcraft is is basically um, creating things from nature, and and bushcraft would be tied more into sort of homesteading, mm-hmm. or in from a hunting perspective, like what an old trapper in Alaska would have to do. Um, just living in a situation with very simple tools, an axe, a saw, sort of what you see on the Alone Show, which is a very popular show um, that History Channel does, and it's an incredible show, and, and everyone that's on that show. Um, deserves a ton of respect. Uh, but, but some of the things that are displayed on that show, um, would fall into that bushcraft category simply because they have the tools to do it. You know, a survival situation is entirely different than a situation that, uh, well, I guess, I don't know what a bushcraft situation would be. Bushcraft is like something you go do in your backyard for fun, or you go (laughs) out in the woods and make videos about for Instagram. It's not, it's not related to survival in the sense that bushcraft skills aren't going to keep you alive in a survival situation. Mm-hmm. And bushcraft would, in my head, would lend itself to just that, right? Living in the bush, right? It's not like you're saying, it's not, it can be life sustaining, but it's not an emergency situation deal when we talk about them in, in contrast. Right. Like technically I would define bushcraft as like, as like the skills that someone with a really high bush IQ or nature IQ would use on a daily basis to substitute modern tools or modern, uh, equip like modern, um, what's the word I'm thinking of here. You go to the hardware store, modern gear, modern, whatever. If you need to build something, you're going to utilize materials from nature and the skills to use those materials to create what you need, whether that's a fishing rod and all you have is a stick, a knife, and your, your reel of monofilament, the skills to make that fishing rod are what I would call bushcraft mm-hmm. rather than survival skills. There is some overlap there. And I think I just, I, uh, I give it a hard time because there's a lot of folks out there that call themselves survival educators when in reality they're teaching bushcraft. Mm-hmm. Cool. Nice skills. A lot of that, you know, there's some crossover, but, but yeah, bushcraft is, is what, is what you said. And I said, where it's like a, what a trapper would do to build his log cabin with an ax and a saw, Mm -hmm. um, you know, back in the day, or even with a chainsaw, I'd consider a lot of that crazy high level, low tech stuff, bushcraft. And then how does that, when we talk, you know, against those two now versus woodsmanship. Woodsmanship. When I think of woodsmanship, I think of it in the context of hunting, but I think of knowing the place that you're in. Woodsmanship is is experience in nature to the point where you have common sense and you're not this like modern, bumbling, domesticated creature that is in a foreign landscape. Woodsmanship is 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 knowing the plants and the trees. It's knowing the hazards of the area you're in. It's knowing, hey that cloud looks really dark and I'm at 11,000 feet and it's moving my direction. Maybe I should stop glassing and get off this peak and go down into the pines down into a lower point. So I don't get struck by lightning. Woodsmanship is, is basically common sense combined with a strong knowledge of place, like knowing your plants and your trees, knowing your, your animal tracks, knowing your scats, knowing the seasonal weather patterns, um, and, and understanding your own limitations and where that all falls into it as you being a part of that landscape. Uh, land nav is a part of woodsmanship. 
Um, all the, all the basic traits of just being able to take care of yourself with your gear in nature and not end up in a survival situation is what I would call woodsmanship. Hi, I'm in $7,000 a sick or first light does not make me a woodsman. (laughs) (laughs) No, your gear does not make you woodsmanship is not a physical thing that you can buy. And that's why you'll rarely hear me talk about anything that anyone can purchase. And it's not because I don't love products and I'm not as much of a gear junkie as everyone else. Cause like, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I didn't love some good clothing, but or good boots or whatever it is. I mean, woodsmanship is in your brain Mm -hmm. and, and woodsmanship. I think that that saying, the more, you know, the less you need really captures the essence of woodsmanship. That actually, okay. So that actually is a good segue because there's one area of it and, and it ties into these three, but like, uh, minimalist, right. And, and, and not to say that people confuse it like the other three, but that's actually interesting and kind of, you know, you segued into that and it made me think of it um, because as you increase that, those things become, like you said, less important. Not that we don't want them. I'm, I'm, and I kind of jabbed at myself with the Sitka. Dude, I'm not giving up my Sitka because I'm comfortable, <laughs> right? I can sustain. I know what I got. Um, but it's it's funny to hear you say that and tie that wisdomship in because – you know, there's packs that guys are like, hey, I, you know, there's packs at 80 pounds for seven days. Um, that's a heavy pack. But and no offense yeah. to anybody, it's a lack of woodsmanship when we feel like we have to take all that. We, we shouldn't have to have all that, you know, air quote, essential gear crammed in a pack. Yeah, woodsmanship is really important. And, um, you know, where I... What really attracted me to traditional archery um, was some mentors that I spent time with uh, that really displayed that like really high level of woodsmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching them interact with nature, and I don't think the weapon defines that. You know what I mean? But I do think there's a little less commercialism in maybe the traditional archery field, or historically there was, and so. Um, you know, folks that were, you know, wearing, you know, trad is plaid, that whole thing. Uh, a lot of the folks that were sort of already really into survival or already had a high baseline level of woodsmanship, maybe gravitated towards that a little bit. Um, it's low tech, you know, uh, and you really are kind of relying on your foundation of what you've learned about that animal in that ecosystem to place you really close so that you can capitalize on that encounter. Um, and I don't think gear is necessarily a problem, but I do think that as hunters, it's important that we recognize that like we're being marketed to. Oh, big time, and buddy. It's, it's, it's all about selling stuff. And the reality of it is I've got really close friends and, and I'm one of these people as well that, you know, I build self bows out of a single piece of Osage orange or you would, Um, I'll chip arrowheads out of stone and I'll cut down a piece of hazel or ocean spray and I'll fletch it up with a turkey feather from a turkey I killed and use, you know, deer, deer legs in you to attach that feather. Like if it's about just going out there and killing an animal, like you don't need all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You could just take your rifle and, and get a a box of shells and go do it. Um, but the stuff can in the right hands can really, make it it can increase the efficiency of someone 
um, out there in nature and it, and it can increase somebody's experience or, or can make it uh, more comfortable for them. But um, I certainly get discouraged by seeing like, I don't spend a lot of time on forums or the internet, but when I do see people post stuff or talk about stuff like, man, I really want to go hunt elk out West, but, but I can't afford a, a pack made by X brand or some boots made by Y. And I'm like, dude, just go to no. the freaking Goodwill, buy some stuff, like learn some basic skills so you don't die and just bring your garbage gear out there and use it. Mm-hmm. Like who cares? Go hunting. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I think, yeah, I think it's important to recognize that we are being marketed to and, and that's fine. You know, there's a money being made in that industry and there's people who make their living and feed their families and um, there's nothing wrong with that. But, but it is important to differentiate skills from gear because they're not the same thing. And they don't and, increase. And they don't go together. Yeah. And gear, the gear does not increase the skill set. I don't, I don't care. No. Yeah, I, dude, I'm horrible, right? I, I, you want to talk about a gearhead, a guy that falls for the marketing and looks at everything and has an inkling to tinker with just about everything. I'm horrible with that, but I do realize that I don't care what it is. It, it's not increasing my skill set. It just, it's not doing it. I may be comfortable. I may be able to shoot farther. That broadhead may be more efficient going through that hide and and bone and and flesh, but nothing replaces that stock or the ability to place the shot where I want it. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't uh, mix. Yeah. You don't like a great, there's a guy that I listened to a podcast about uh, this guy named Mike Barrett mm-hmm. on some, this traditional archery podcast that uh, some friends of mine do um, there in Oregon. It's trad quest. Anyways, this guy, Mike Barrett, he, doesn't even carry glass with him. And this dude's super old and he's killed so many giant bucks and bulls with a longbow at like, you know, he doesn't even shoot past like 15 yards or something. And, and guess what glass he, you know, the guy uses a set of pocket Swarovski binoculars that are like 20 years old. You know, he doesn't even, you don't need like the $20,000 in glass isn't going to like automatically add, you know, 50 inches to that buck. It's not going to, it's not going to guarantee anything. It's all about knowing at the end of the day, like the skills that you need to get close Mm -hmm. and and about learning and and about knowing your equipment and knowing how to tune your bow or, or sight in your rifle and knowing like how to make that shot in the conditions that you're in and, and how to approach that animal at that right time of day. It's just all those experiences. And I think woodsmanship is really gained for those folks that, that feel like they don't have it or, um, those just getting into it, you know, you get that woodsmanship is earned. It can't be bought and you earn it through failing. And if you're not pushing yourself and failing and blowing stocks and screwing up opportunities and shots, then you're not learning. And so I think it's important to, to recognize that, um, that ultimately you need to earn woodsmanship and it comes from time outside getting close to animals, man. It, uh, <laughs> that immediate gratification thing that, that, uh, we seem to want, and I'm broad stroking saying we, um, that we seem to want, I mean, it's, it's really brought itself into our realm as hunters. Um, yeah, very heavily over the last, you know, call it last decade, maybe not that much, but over the last decade, you've seen that increase. I mean, it's just been crazy. 
And it's, and it's not just in hunting, you know, in the survival industry, I think social media has created a monster and, um, it's just, it's better to just get outside and do it. And that's what I really try and remind myself all the time. Um, because when I started out, it was, it was about being out there and doing it and whether it's survival or hunting and that, you know, you just had to spend that more time in the field and it wasn't about what what you had or any of this stuff, or it was about just learning the place you're in and, and, and learning and getting experiences to continue that learning process. Um, and I always try and tell people, you know, they ask me, I get asked a lot of questions and, and because of where I'm at in my field, I think that I try to remind people, like, it's really important to always have that student mentality because Mm -hmm. the second that you think, you know, something is the second that you stop learning. And other like social media has created that where ego gets involved in hunting. And, and I think for a hunter, like if they, if they let themselves get to that point, like they shoot themselves in the foot, you stop learning once you get there. And, and I think being super humble and always asking questions and being really open-minded to what other people have to say and other folks approaches and other folks, how they like to do something or their equipment or this or that, like that's how you learn and grow. And, and there isn't one way to do something like if you want to go kill an elk, I'm not an elk hunter, but you know, like there's plenty of guys out there killing a lot of elk and they're not bugling or even using a call. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, and you don't have to do what everyone else is doing to be successful. You know what I mean? And, uh, not that there's anything wrong with bugling, but I just, it was just a great example in hunting that you don't have to follow the masses and the old school techniques that guys used before all of that are still legit and they still kill elk. They just might not be as fun for everybody and exciting in the case of elk hunting. And I, and there's a point to that too, where you have a skill set as a hunter, right? You, you, you know, you, you excel, just say you excel in spot and stock, right? And you start looking at that sex appeal part of elk and wanting to bugle, bugle, bugle. And not to say there, I don't have anything against it. I do it. I, I'm going to try everything. Um, oh, yeah. But you can't stop doing what you know, right? Your bit of woodsmanship. You can't stop doing that to pursue something else. It's like you have a skill set. Focus in on your skill set. Just add those other things to your repertoire. But don't lose those other things, right? Just add to it, right? And increase that skill set. Going back to what you said, as you do that, you'll learn, but you're not going to decrease your odds or chances by throwing away what you already know and throwing something new in the mix. And then, you know, basically you're starting over, you know, and I, and I see that a lot. I'm guilty of that when I started, you know, hunting elk, um, you know, hey, that should have been a spot and stalk situation, but instead I'm cow calling and I probably could have got in another 40 yards and had a shot. Well, I screwed up, I cow called, and now that bull's gone. Um, yeah. what, what he wanted to hear at that point, right? And and I'm, you know, again, I'm guilty of it. It's something else. Do you think, as you were going through it, I'm hearing things, do you think that that traditional side of things you know, that, that pursuit that you've had has, cause there's something about staying connected to the passion part of it, to hunting. That's what we love. And I think the, like you said, and maybe it's social media, maybe it's marketing, maybe it's all of it that has kind of disconnected us from 
that that not the traditional archery hunter, but just the tradition of a hunter um, because yep. of all that. Right. Because of all this outside influence saying, you know, spend your money here again, nothing wrong with it. But I think a lot of that has pulled us from that traditional sense, you know, of hunting. Yeah. Like I, I think woodsmanship is a great example because for example, like an archer pre, I don't know, pre like heavily manufactured broadheads, like a, an essential skill of an archer would be the ability to, sh to field sharpen a broadhead, right? <laughs> to get that broadhead hair popping sharp right. in the field. Right. Which, which is something that I haven't seen. Like it's, it's something that guys have to really think about as an honest, like ask themselves that question. Like, Hey, if I shot all my broadheads into the dirt and they were dull, would I be able to get them hair popping sharp again with what's in my backpack or with And even if I had a file or a stone or whatever, you know, I know that's what I use as, as a trad guy, but if I had that gear, like, would I be able to do it? And, and it's not even, even in the trad world, man, there's a lot of guys that aren't, they're not, they don't have those skills. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like they, there's a lot, it's not just in one thing or the other, it's just archery in general. I feel like just buying replaceable blades or like buying a new pack of broadheads or whatever it is, um, or shooting a broadhead that has such a hard Rockwell hardness that you can't even rip on it with a file mm -hmm. and you got to take it home and hit it on a belt sander or some other equipment. Like just that, that really captures this, um, idea of woodsmanship. Cause when I think of woodsmanship, I, I think of like Fred bear, or I think of, I don't know. Uh, I think of, uh, Jason or, uh, Glenn St. Charles, Jay's son. I think of like the pioneers of archery, mm -hmm. you know, Saxon Pope, Art Young, all these guys that, you know, you had to know how to track. You had to know how to look at a track and know it's fresh. You had to know how to fix your equipment in the field, um, how to get a broadhead sharp again. All of animal behavior, like all of that stuff is, is what I think of as woodsmanship. And like I said, it's like it's some of that is earned. And it's only going to come from just going out there and grinding it out. Yep. And, and if you don't go do that because you're so afraid of success or not or Instagram or whatever it is, um, then you're just never going to get that experience. And I think for most guys, I think it's just more important that you go out there and you look at some tracks and you ask yourself questions and maybe you don't kill a buck, but maybe you go out there and, and you see some, some sign that you've never seen before and you take some pictures and you go home and you figure out what that is. Mm -hmm. Next time you go out, you identify that and somehow that ties into you having success in the future. Like, or you learn a, a plant and you're like, dang, this is a, this plant is just the deer have hammered this. They're browsing on it like crazy. And you learn what it is and then you find a huge patch of it. And then you end up shooting a buck in there early season the next year or whatever it is. Like those things just come from experience, you know? And, and I, I think it's that guys should be more concerned about going out there and learning about the environment that they're in than like a specific animal and its name that they gave it right. or a trail camera picture that captures one second of that animal's life. You know in, what I mean? Like what's that, it doing the, yeah. the other 24 hours that it's not in the camera frame? Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you should be more worried about that than what it did when it walked by for 10 seconds. Heck yeah. I mean, you, it's moving around all day. You got 15 square foot of activity. Um, yes. You, you can't hone in on anything. Oh, it went that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that, I just, I'm talking from my own personal frustration with them, you know, cause you're like, well, great. 
uh, I know this deer moves through here once every two weeks. Real right. helpful. Yeah. I got to check the whole square mile around here to figure out where he moves every 13 days, you know, every thir- every other 13 days that he's not here. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's funny how that, how that all ties in. And I think woodsmanship is, a, is something that, that everybody can like, I think you can succeed at woodsmanship every time you go outside and building your skill level. And, and I think that guys are, I don't, I'm, I'm, when I say guys, I'm not talking about any specific, like anything specifically, but I'm just encouraging folks that I just noticed this trend in hunting where hunters used to be the guys that were the most connected to the landscape. Like they knew the plants, they knew the trees, they knew the seasonal temps, they knew what the predominant wind was going to be. You know, and this isn't just archers. Like this goes deep into rifle hunting as well. Like one of the most all-time blacktail books is written by a rifle hunter, Boyd Iverson. So like there, it doesn't matter what weapon you use. It's just how you interact with the landscape. And, and it's the same with survival because the more you know about the landscape, the better off you're going to be. Um, and that's across the board. Yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, going back to the all the different platforms, you know, with the the ease of gaining information, right? You can, you can get on YouTube or Google, whatever you want. And there's a thousand videos, right? But watching the video and now applying that, you, starting a fire from nothing is one of, in my opinion, is one of the hardest, it's harder than going and killing an animal. Um, yeah. If you're not, <laughs> if you don't have, it's funny for me. For me, it's harder to go shoot a buck than it is uh, to just go out into the woods naked without a knife or anything and whip out a bow drill fire. But like, it's experience, you right. know. They're they're both very challenging. Yeah, but, I mean, um, not not knowing what wood to have on the drill. You know what I mean? It just yeah, it yeah. is that is a skill set. And now we we have you know these quick going fire starters. Um, I carry pyro putty with me, right? And and mm-hmm. strike that and the sucker's burning, it's burning hot and there's my fire. Uh, but I do every year sit, you know, and just in the backyard and I'll sit there and I'll struggle with trying to start a fire. Um, just yeah. just with minimal stuff um, that, that I may have in my pack. If I don't have the pyro putty um, or something, you know, along those lines, how am I gonna get this fire started? So I'll sit there and struggle bus um, just just to do it now is that woodsmanship we'll see if i'm in the position to where i have to use that skill set in the woods but we have to we have to be able to apply it it. (laughs) It, yeah you have to do it because specifically with survival i'll talk a little bit about survival here and what you just said and how i heard it in the context of like being a survival instructor what you just said was excellent in that when I'm, I think every, when it comes to survival, like you got to carry what you can use, you know what I mean? So like you're, you got to set yourself up for success. And that doesn't mean like just flexing your muscles out there being like, Mr. I can start a fire with a redwood rootlet and a, you know, piece, a broken piece of rock that I carve my notch with and break my, make my bow drill parts. And I can crank out a fire in an hour that way. Like that's great. But in an emergency situation, like we're talking about a potentially life-threatening situation that could be one of the most traumatic situations in someone's life. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of times in that situation, you're not in a relaxed psychological state and nobody gets to choose when they enter a survival situation. So the weather, the light, the time of day, how exhausted you are, whether or not you're injured, what mood you're in, like you don't have a choice when you enter that. 
situation. You're just dealt with the, the cards that you got at that time and you got to run with them. And so from a psychological perspective, you know, um, what you just talked about was seven P's, right? Proper prior planning prevents piss poor performance. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically the first one, which is physical prep and physical prep is, is just literally being competent enough to do what you need to do with the tools that you're carrying, whether that's pyro putty and a Bic lighter or a ferrocerium rod or uh, some other type of, you know, ignition source and accelerant, like you just got to be able to put it together when you need to. And, and to set some context here, like when we're talking about emergency fire starting, practicing in your backyard is awesome. But the times I would recommend to go out and practice are the times when it's pouring rain two in the morning and then go practice it. Try it then. You know what I mean? Fresh out of bed in your underwear, like freezing your butt off. Like that's when you need to be practicing and seeing where you're at. Cause if you can succeed then, then realistically you, you might succeed in a survival situation. I think something a lot of guys don't consider is these emergency situations. You're not going to be in a relaxed mental state for the most part. Maybe you'll be able to really hang on to that positive mental attitude, but ultimately you're going to be dealing with your sympathetic nervous system response, which is your fight or flight response. And what happens when your fight or flight response kicks on is you're going to be hamstrung, right? You're going to be limited to gross motor movements, which is basically uh, the, the best way to describe that is what I was taught by a seal that I worked with a long time ago. And that was Uh, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back on your training. Mm -hmm. And so what you've done before and you can do well is all you're going to be able to expect from yourself in a situation like that. Um, you can't be expecting to learn new things under the operating system of your fight or flight response. And so you're limited to gross motor movements and what we call the reptilian brain or yes or no decisions. And so your ability to just make simple decisions goes away. And, and that's not even including fear and like your metabolic process being sped up and early onset symptoms of, of hypothermia and the fact that fear in, impairs circulation, um, you know, it, it impairs good judgment. Like your physiological symptoms can can really tank. And, and, and so it's important to consider that when you're when you're putting your pack together, like am I bringing things that I've bought or did I just, or that I just bought and I never used, or am I bringing stuff that I'm extremely familiar with? Because ultimately being freaked out, panicking is going to, is going to impair your fine and complex motor skills, uh, which is your hand-eye coordination. And it's going to really make it hard for you to make decisions. Um, and so you, you really got to be familiar with what you're doing. Uh, otherwise you're just not setting yourself up for success. And that, that fight or flight response or that panic state is kind of how people go from being on a trail to being in some deep Canyon, right? Cause a lot of these survival situations that you read about in the news, it's like some person is stuck in some remote, like some place, a quarter mile from a trail that they had to bring a helicopter in to hoist them out of there. It's like, how the heck did they go from being on a trail to being in a Canyon? And the only explanation I have for that is they panicked. And cause when people panic, they essentially black out, um, and under adrenaline and the operating system of adrenaline, it's just like, you can't expect to be who you are right now. Um, and so, yeah, practicing is really important and, and making your kit really simple and having a high level of woodsmanship, like all of those things are going to help you. Um, none of them can hurt you. Not practicing, 
having higher uh, expectations than reality is a problem. And uh, in no woodsmanship and expecting someone to come and save your ass. Now, that's not setting yourself up for success. That's how people die. Yep, that's death right there. That's horrible. Well, man. I could I could talk here. So I, I work with the, the California Highway Patrol Air Rescue Crew. And so if you're hunting in California and you get lost uh, in, in any of the national forests, um, if it's outside the jurisdiction of like a, a county with a lot of resources, like if you're in uh, Tahoe National Forest or, um, you know, outside of Auburn or down there in D-Zone, like the CHP, they tend to be some of the first in the air as far as like if you hit your Garmin inreach or your Zolio or your spot, like they're the ones that are going to come and respond to that situation and do and circle around checking in on you. Now, when I, when I got to work with those guys, I got, to, I asked them, I was like, dude, what are the, what are you most, what are the situations that you're responding to most often? Right. And specifically they, they did bring up hunters and, uh, there were quite a few situations where there was either an accidental discharge um, that resulted in an injury or death, um, or most commonly it was heat stroke and dehydration in a zone mm-hmm. guys, not packing enough water and not being physically fit enough and biting off more than they can chew. Believe it or not, that made up a large percentage of um, hunter related rescues that they had to do that year. Wow. Um and I was really surprised to hear that. I've been there, done that. Um, what was yeah. that? Two years ago. I think it was two years ago. I mean, you know, a zone, 110, 115. Uh, the, the creek usually has some some semblance of water. Um, usually about that fourth or fifth week of a zone is when it starts to dry up that year for whatever reason. Bone dry. Do we dropped over the back? It's about five miles. And uh, all that, you know, carrying a three liter because we're assuming we've hunted this area for years. We're assuming that yeah. that water is going to be there. Man, we got to the back and it's like, let's hit it. I'm dying. I need water. I'm out and nothing. And we were, you know, looking for any little pocket of moisture that we could flip a rock, dig down a couple feet. And I think, I think we dug two and a half feet. I mean, you're talking no cover. It's 110, 115 yeah. moving boulders or digging the side of a boulder down, you know, a foot and a half, two feet, just to get eight ounces of water, um, yeah, sipped out of it, right? I mean, and, and thank goodness for knowing that that was something that we could do. Um, I, I think uh, maybe an hour and a half of two hours of this, we might have got sixteen to twenty ounces of water each, and then we still had to go the five miles dry. You know, I mean, you want to yeah. talk about a situation, and and that's those. I don't think. I think people take it for granted. I think the comforts allow us to take it for granted. And until we are in the situation, because if you're in the woods enough, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's absolutely when it's going to happen. Like you said, you have no control over it. Um, So we make the assumption that, hey, it's not that big of a deal, right? Or I don't want to have an extra three pounds in my pack with that water. And I, and honestly, that was probably our mindset. Hey, the three liters will drop back to the Creek. We'll fill up and then we'll be good. Um, that's the stuff that bites you in the butt. I mean, it, and, and that pack yeah. back, that last mile of that pack, I kid you not. I turned around, looked at my buddy and I said, Hey man, if I hit the deck, just book to the vehicle, get some water, hit the SOS and then just come back. 
you know, don't, yeah. don't you fall down too. And two of, you know, there's two of us laying down back here. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tight spot to be in. Um, and a very realistic situation and you're the way you handle it is excellent as far as the strategy is concerned on locating water. Um, because digging for, you know, just cause you can't see surface water doesn't mean it's not there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases digging for water mitigates risk of even getting infected if you were to not treat that water. Um, you know, one last thing I'll say about preparedness is, is psychologically like a good way to think of it is that regardless of how simple a skill appears to be like all of your actions, conscious or subconscious are composed of like very complex neurophysiological functions. And so if you end up in that bad spot, you like, when I talk about gross motor movements, I'm really talking about basic stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm really talking about things like using a Bic lighter. You know, I'm talking about the most simple actions that you can possibly perform because if you're, if you're relying on a ferro rod or you're relying on something that you're not familiar with and like that you couldn't do blindfolded shivering in a rainstorm, then, then like, why is that thing even in your pack? Like that's what you should have when you're out in your backyard or on your camping trip or messing around at the barbecue. But you know, I'm a big believer in, in carrying what will work and what's simple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes that's just like what your emergency kit looks like is, is looking at the weather, wearing the right clothing, bringing a tourniquet, in your first aid kit. Cause let's face it. If, if you need a tourniquet, you need a tourniquet. And the only thing that's going to do the job is a tourniquet and you need it right then and there. Yep. And you know, a big lighter or whatever you're super familiar with. I'm sure there's excellent fire starting options out there. I'm, I'm not really familiar with all the commercial options. Um, but, but carry a fire start, a very reliable, easy to use fire starting device if you need to use it. Um, and just tell someone where you're going and when you're going to be back and be prepared to, to uh, rely on that and, and utilize them or your satellite emergency beacon. Mm-hmm. One of the, well, and I like to say something here that's not, it applies, but it doesn't, you know, we, we get out there and we're not in a situation to where we need to use what's in our pack, right? If you have a moment, if you say, Hey, I'm beat today and I'm going to, I'm going to camp out right here. Make that the moment where you decide to go and try and start a fire from scratch, right? Don't use the pyroputty or the accelerant. Go try that at that moment. And because you said it, right? An hour, an hour to start a fire. Most guys are like, man, I don't want to try and start a fire for an, I don't want to sit there for an hour doing this. I want to, you know, light the bick and, and, you know, put my feet up and, shoot the shit the rest yeah. of the evening, you know, but that's the moment yeah, that you need we, to do it. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. And we, we actually have, we've talked a lot about fire, but I do want to bring up shelter because I think that like my approach, excuse me on shelter mm-hmm. uh, versus fire is, is kind of interesting. And I think a lot of guys would benefit from this. Um, and that is fire is really, is really important, right? Like in some cases, fire is what you need, but, I don't know about you, you know, we both hunt in, in, (laughs) we both are in California and hunting in a zone. Like if you can't get a fire going, like you've got some issues, right? Like (laughs) we can barely keep them from just starting on their own. So, so it's, it's funny to talk about in that context, but 
there are, you know, I lived in the Pacific Northwest on the West slope of the Cascades for a year. Um, and in that environment, I remember that year it rained like three months straight. There was severe flooding. It was, it was crazy. And, and if you, there were, there were, if you got lost, making a fire would just be a complete waste of your time and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason that I say that is you just, no matter how good you are at it, you the likelihood of you succeeding was just so low. And rather than putting your energy onto making a fire, unless you, you know, you had some commercial fire starting product and, and really high skill level, but, but what I would do rather than doing, wasting my time or, or using my time and energy to do that is I'd go ahead and consider the fact that if I have to spend a night out here, right. And I don't have a tent or a sleeping bag, then I'm going to have to go ahead and build something that's going to keep me warm and being it, learning how to utilize debris as insulation is probably one of the most important survival skills I think any hunter could learn. Because the reality is, is if you get lost and you don't have your pack with you and you know how to build a shelter, you're basically inconveniently camping. Mm -hmm. Like at that point, you're just ultralight camping because you can build a shelter and you're going to be fine that night. You're not going to die from hypothermia, which is the number one, hypothermia slash exposure is the number one cause of death in outdoor recreation and in the survival field. Like when people get lost, they die of exposure. It's not starvation. It's not thirst. It's it's exposure. And so being able to thermoregulate efficiently is kind of the cornerstone upon which all other survival skills are built upon. Like efficient thermoregulation is why we eat. It's why we drink. It's why we sleep in a sleeping bag. It's why we do everything that we do. And so to simplify that for survival, in order to build a shelter that's going to keep you warm, all you have to understand is one, your heat source and how to avoid losing your own body heat, right? So your heat source, I just, your heat source is your body heat. So it's metabolic heat, right? So we have body heat that comes off of our body and that's why that clothing keeps you warm. Um, and, and when it comes to clothing, wearing an appropriate clothing system is a huge advantage. And I know Sitka has, has John Barklow who does, uh, has a background in survival and does, um, talks a lot about their clothing and how to utilize it in a system. Um, you know, any clothing tech, any technical outdoor clothing manufacturer designs their clothing intentionally, though. I think he brings, uh, some really unique views to the field, uh, or to, to the brand and, and mindsets. And I don't know, he, he's a cool guy and I really appreciate his contribution. And from a survival instructor that like, that's what I do. You know, I don't work for a clothing company. I don't, I don't work in the industry. I teach survival. Like I appreciate what he says. And I think all of what he says is super legit. So anyways, as far as building a shelter goes, we have metabolic heat, right? That's our body heat coming off of our body. And that's why you could throw your down jacket on when you're glassing. Maybe you're sweating a little, you throw it on because you know, when you sit down and start glassing, you're going to freeze your ass off if you don't put that jacket on. Right. So you go ahead, you try to stay ahead of it a little bit. So you get up there, you're a little hot and sweaty. You throw that jacket on so that, you know, you don't wait until you're shivering to pop it on because you're going to take a little longer to recover. That's a little bit of a different talk. But anyways, metabolic heat, the way insulation works is basically there's two main ways your body loses heat. And those are conduction and convection. And this would apply to glassing or sleeping in a tarp tent with your sleeping bag. Conductive heat loss is why we carry sleeping pads, right? Some sleeping pads are really comfortable. But I'm sure all of us have had the experience of either an inflatable pad popping or not bringing a sleeping pad because it's a heavy foam pad and we want to be the ultra lightweight guy. (laughs) 
The problem with that is when you do sleep on the ground, which maybe you've experienced, right? You freeze your butt off. It's significantly colder when you, when you don't have a sleeping pad beneath you. And that's because the ground is a heat sink and it'll suck the heat out of your body. And it'll stop at nothing until it gets the entire earth to the same temperature of your body, which, you know, is never going to happen. So we got to be insulated from the ground. Otherwise, we're going to be losing body heat via conduction. Convective heat loss is what most people would be familiar with as wind chill. It's air moving around your body. And in order, you know, both of those have the same solution, and that's insulation. And insulation is, is basically any material that traps air against your body, but also has an attribute that we call dead air space, um, volume. Uh, the best way to describe it would be a material that's fluffy and has a low weight to volume ratio. That could be dead grass. That could be sagebrush. That could be redwood tan oak leaves. That could be pine needles. Any vegetation on the ground, living or dead, will insulate as long as it's not huge sticks. So you collect as much of that as possible. You throw it in a huge pile. I'm talking like four or five feet tall, if you if you can, right? Um, and you just crawl inside of that thing. Now, don't get hung up on like the four or five foot tall because resourcefulness is a really impar- important part of survival. And, and sometimes like you just are where you are. And psychologically speaking, if you're shooting for uh, a exactly five foot pile and you're at 11,000 feet and you know, you're above tree line, then you're not going to get there. Mm-hmm. And so you got to do your best. Otherwise you're going to be focusing on failure and just acknowledging a failure. You're already shooting yourself in the foot in that situation. So, um, to kind of bring the tie that all together, what I just said, an example of utilizing what I just described in a hunting situation would be you're up glassing for mule deer in the high country. And, you're, you're glassing for mule deer. It's late in the day. Um, and you gotta, you gotta hike back to your camp. It's super windy and it's, uh, you know, I don't know what the temperature is, but it's super windy. Right. And that night it will get cold. So an example of, of utilizing shelter would be if for some reason you couldn't get back to your camp, right? What you would do is you would one, get out of the wind so that could be a boulder, that could be a, a little dish in, um, or a dip in the ground, whatever, a, a terrain feature. You just get out of the wind, right? And now you've got convective heat loss handled. Once you're out of the wind, you got to insulate yourself from the ground. Maybe you have a butt pad, maybe you don't. If you do have a butt pad, lay that puppy out, put on every layer that you have in your pack and do a bunch of jumping jacks and then lay down on that butt pad and curl up into a ball. When you curl up into the ball, into a ball, you actually retain 70% of your long wave radiation heat loss, which is the heat coming off of your body. Short wave is fire and sun. Long wave is the human body. So you retain 70% of your body heat when you curl up into a ball. Um, it's not comfortable to sleep like that, but as long as you can get out of the wind and then insulate yourself from the ground, you can 100% survive that situation. And if it's really bad, you might have to get up every half hour do some jumping jacks. Hopefully you've got calories and water because that's going to be your biggest limitation other than your own brain um, (laughs) to making it through that situation. Now, if you didn't have a butt pad, you know, rip up sagebrush, rip up grass, like whatever you have is what you'll use. 
right? The question of like, what if I'm stuck on top of a mountain naked and there's nothing? It's like, well, then you're going to die. What are you doing on you know top I mean? of the like, mountain naked in the first place? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The context, you know what I mean? So, so like, I think it's important to, to know, like, you're going to have hopefully something with you or natural resources. And if, and if that's not going to be the case, then it's got to be in your backpack. Mm-hmm. You know, if nature can't provide for you, like, and you're climbing Mount Everest or something crazy, then yeah, you got to have oxygen and you got to have high tech gear. Otherwise you're just not going to do it. Um, and so I think key takeaways from that would just be the fact that you always got to insulate yourself from the ground and you always got to insulate yourself from the air moving around your body. A really good clothing system can go a really long way. Um, in, in properly layering is really important when people do die from hypothermia and exposure. A lot of times it's related to exertion and not using the correct clothing and not layering correctly so that you sweat, wet out your layers. And then ultimately that can result in hypothermia when that exertion event ends, right? So you hike to the top of some mountain in the dark of the morning because you want a glass, you're wearing all your layers, you sweat like crazy, you soak all your stuff, you get up there. And because you were in a rush, you didn't take off any layers. Now you're shivering. Now all your clothes are wet. And because you're not wearing some, you know, high-end merino um, or some quality synthetic and you're wearing a bunch of cotton, now you're at a risk for hypothermia and it's going to blow your whole morning of glassing. That uh, Hopefully that made some sense. Oh, it absolutely <laughs> did. It absolutely did. So I'm going to rewind us a little bit. And, and you were talking about okay. when you brought the shelter into it, right? And, and that was one yeah. of the things I was thinking about, you know, as we're talking about it, uh, both. And I, and I think that there is a, for whatever reason, we always go to fire first. And I think part of that yeah. is, and, and maybe, maybe the situation doesn't really deem it, but I think there's things that are calming to us, right. That are going to set us at ease uh, for the, you know, the, the, the things that go bump in the night. Cause I don't have my creature comforts of my tent or whatever that, that situation is. So we immediately go to fire um, because that's, that's providing some sense of calm or security um, where the shelter in my head, as you're talking about, it does the same thing and actually probably provides more benefit in that realm. So outside yeah. of that, what I, what I want to do, is is let's talk about the priorities right in in, in yeah. survival um because there's there's a couple of majors but one of the things i'd like you to start with and, and and if you disagree with it that's fine but i think the number one priority and i think it's overlooked or not talk about enough is talking yourself into taking a moment to assess the situation. But I think that's something that you have to do prior to being in the situation and kind of tell yourself, Hey, if I'm ever caught off guard in whatever survival situation I may be in, my number one is assess the situation because I, I think if you don't assess the situation, you're going to focus on the problem and not the solution. And I'm huge on if the problem presents itself, you know that there's a problem, but the solution is priority number one. So if you could t- take that yeah. and then focus on priorities. So I think what, what you're saying, it, uh, the way I would translate that would be like positive mental attitude is your number one attribute or survival is 90% psychological. Mm-hmm. Like those there two statements, I think represent what, what you're getting out there. And to simplify that further, a lot of that is controlling fear. And 
in a survival situation, fear is inevitable. And the more you can control that fear, the better off you're going to do. And there's a lot of different ways you can control fear. Um, you know, positive mental attitude, focusing on your goal, which is being rescued or getting out of that situation is probably the number one that saved more lives than anything else is just really being able to focus on your, your goal or the hope, the hope of what the outcome is going to be perceiving that as positive, right? Like the quality of your thoughts is going to dictate the quality of the situation. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's really important to not let your brain take over because, you know, if, if you do let, if you do let these negative thoughts take over, then uh, all of a sudden, you know, your mind is going to control you. So if you don't control, you, you don't rule your mind, it will rule you. And our minds can do some crazy things. And so, um, as far as controlling fear is concerned, right? Like uh, things you can do in the field that will help you feel more confident and maintaining that positive mental attitude and focusing on what you need to do, um, is training, right? Which we talked a little bit about, but just like having confidence in your physical skills, um, and, and even your mental skills, right. Being, being familiar with that sensation of, of being uncomfortable, uh, that can be really valuable. Um, maintaining like, or, or staying constructively busy. Right. So like maintaining a certain amount of, you know, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but like efficiency mm-hmm. and, in in working on tasks at hand, whether that's like, working on your shelter or building your fire or going and looking for water, or just focusing on constructive tasks that are going to better your situation. Um, keeping your imagination in check, like just being real intentional about the thoughts that you allow yourself to entertain, not letting yourself go to that dark place. Um, that's really important, you know, and to get even, even, more extreme, like positive affirmations can be really helpful. Like I am alive right now and doing okay. Like that's, that's a, that can be a big part of it. Um, because if, if you, if you allow yourself to go into these negative places, like I'm lost, I'm a failure, blah, blah, blah. Like (laughs) that can just, that's just going to amplify everything bad about what's happening. And you have to create an illusion of control. Um, and, and if I had to, like look at all these crazy survival situations that I've read about and, and interviews that I've read and all this stuff. Um, there's a great book about psychological survival and it's called deep survival. And it's by a guy named Lawrence Gonzalez. And if this type of stuff is interesting to any of the listeners, um, I highly recommend it. It's a excellent resource in, in that field. And one of the biggest takeaways from his book, having interviewed, you know, folks that have gone through some of the most extreme survival situations in recent history is utilizing humor, right? Like just being able to be lighthearted mm-hmm. about an otherwise horrible situation, like potentially being extremely injured and on the verge of death, but maintaining that positive mental attitude um, and utilizing humor about that situation can be really valuable. Um, and to tie that back into prioritizing, you know, uh, yeah, survival is 90% psychological. And statistically speaking, your actions within the first six hours of a survival situation are the most critical and are going to influence the outcome, you know, the greatest. So ultimately you're, you're talking about your initial decision-making process being the most important. And 
what I tell people to do is just stop, assess the situation, stay calm. And it's not like some, you know, like it's not stop where I have like a word for each letter or anything (laughs) that, you know, stop, stay calm. Um, those things do exist, but they're, they're not what I use. So stay calm, you know, focus on positive things, take a deep breath, really recognize that all you need to survive right now is shelter, water, fire, food. And that's all you need to do. And it's really quite simple. And when it comes to shelter, all you have to do is build a shelter literally like out of pile of, out of a pile of leaves. And so when it comes to making a shelter out of a pile of leaves, like everybody can do that. That's 100% attainable. And that's something that, um, everybody can do. So yeah, I, that, that's one thing I tell people to do. I tell people to stay calm. Um, it's hard to tell someone to stay calm, but that just comes from practice and experience. Um, let's see what else. Uh, I mean, really just prioritizing that shelter, water, fire, food, and recognizing that that's all you need to do to stay alive. Right. And it's really quite simple. Like you don't have to overcomplicate it. You don't have to make it into some crazy situation where, you know, uh, it's life or death and maybe it is, but in your head, all you have to do is figure out what's most important. And as far as prioritizing those things, it's pretty simple. It's something called the rule of threes. And the rule of threes is basically your body's limitation without your biological survival needs. So on average, most people can go three minutes without air, three hours without shelter in inclement conditions, which means like early stages of hypothermia and not taking actions to remedy that situation, three days without water, three weeks without food and three years without human interaction. And why that's valuable is because it allows us to create a list, right? And we all know what creating a list does for our brain. It calms us down and it helps us become more efficient. And so recognizing that the rule of threes goes three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, three days without water, three weeks without food, three years without human interaction, and then prioritizing those needs in the situation you're in is an excellent way to stop your brain from thinking that you're not in control of that situation. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. Sorry, got a little crazy. No, there no, no. I love barking. it, man. Um, oh, I'm not okay. with that. Yeah, the dogs, that, that's all that natural nuance of having an actual conversation. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> so let's spin it a little bit, totally. man. Let's talk a little bit of hunting and, and how and how your approach with survival. Now, are you a minimalist hunter because you're in trad or is it just, you know, the trad bow, but you got the gear and how does all that how does all that play into because this is so so folks need to listen to this but they also need to look at uh your.com right uh jackson harris jack yeah they can they can check like on instagram i'm not like a real so from an internet perspective like i i just uh i'm so busy teaching classes and and working with folks that i don't really like put myself out there a whole lot on the internet because i i you know, I've got like, I don't know, I teach like 600 classes or wait, let's see. I teach like, uh, I teach a lot of classes every year, like <laughs> well over, I think like, uh, you know, they're almost every single weekend and sometimes every day during the week. And it just depends. So I'm teaching a lot of classes. I don't know exactly how many, but, um, 
on the internet, but if people do have questions, you know, they can reach out to me on Instagram, which is just Jack Harrison survival, or they can go to my website, Jack Harrison survival, um, you know, multitude of ways to get in touch with me. Um, but yeah, so as far as hunting goes, uh, I do hunt with traditional equipment and, uh, you know, I have a rifle too. I, I, uh, I hunt, I have a bird dog. So I, I'm a big, I like hunt birds and upland and, um, I definitely don't do that with a trad bow because arrows and dogs don't go well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just love being out there. And for me, the traditional bow was just a way for me to spend more time in nature with an archery only tag. And, and, you know, I, I've never owned a compound and I, I did have the opportunity, you know, I shot one for like the first time last year, I think, I mean that like I shot a real one. Um, and it was just too, it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't really get like the site all figured out. And it was just, too, I just too couldn't much. do it from all of my, it was too much for me to deal with. And I, from like a survival perspective, like I'm so, I've been doing the survival thing for so long that like, I just feel like if I can't fix that thing in the field, like I'm screwed. And so I just, I just didn't want to be in a situation where I like bump the site or, or something weird like that. And, and now my, my weapon's not going to work or I don't, I don't know enough about them. So, um, I've always been a traditional guy. Um, I have friends, my hunting partners that, that shoot compounds and, um, I, I mostly hunt alone these days, but, uh, you know, what I carry into the field has a lot to do with like what I'm hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the hunting I do is, is for, uh, hogs. I do a lot of hog hunting. That's probably what I'm potentially most passionate about a lot of hogs. I love Turkey hunting and then a zone bucks, um, with blacktails being like at the top of the list there. Um, you know, I might go up to Oregon this year and hunt blacktails. Um, I'm not super fast. I mean, I'm not an elk hunter, but maybe that's something I'll get into one of these days. I think the barrier to entry is just like money and, um, and just how hard it's getting to get tags and, and go on quality hunts. I really hate crowds, uh, which is funny coming from someone that hunts a zone, but, uh, <laughs> I really hate crowds. And, uh, and so I just don't have any interest to be in a super crowded environment with a bunch of other guys. But, um, so yeah, what I bring with me has a lot to do with like the hunt I'm going on, but to, to, I do think that I'm probably a lot more minimalist, minimalist than, than some other folks are. Um, I, I really don't like being loud. So like I carry, usually I'll carry a small pack with me and I'll I'll leave if I'm hunting, like within hiking distance from the truck and it's not like a backpack hunt, then I'll leave my like meat haul and pack in the car and I'll just carry like a ultra, like a super light day pack with me. That's super silent. And I'll just bring whatever I think I need in that bag, right? As little as I can. And the only thing I'll go really heavy on is, uh, food and water. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't like to wear big clunky boots. Um, the shoes that I wear more probably resemble like moccasins, uh, as far as like when I'm not in extreme environments. Now, when, when I get an animal down and I have to pack it out, like first thing I'm doing is if I can, if I, if I'm not on a backpack hunt or I'm close enough to the vehicle, then, uh, I'm putting boots on. Um, and, and if I am far from the car, I just wear boots and I carry a little more weight in my pack, but I'm really noise conscious being a traditional hunter. So I don't like having too much gear on me. Like uh, for me having a bino harness, I, I do wear a bino harness, but like if that thing's making noises or squeaking, it's a no go. Um, 
I, uh, the less stuff I have with me, the better. Um, and so typically I'm just carrying clothes, water, food, uh, sharp knife, a way to resharpen that knife. My, my arrows, my quiver, headlamp, lighter, um, a little first aid kit and, uh, some flagging tape and my binos. And, and that's all I, I really have with me. Um, and you know, I definitely do and have done a lot of backpack hunts. It's, it, I love them. Um, and I try to get out on at least one a year, um, specifically for deer or bear. Um, but mostly deer and, uh, I love them and, and, I, I, I definitely don't pack heavy with those. I, I, I am a big believer in using a tent and, uh, you know, I like using a tent because look, you know, if, if I'm, if I need a shelter, then I want a shelter. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm not a big tarp guy just cause if I'll just sleep out on the ground, if, if there's no rain and no bugs, you know, I'll just park it on the ground. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I keep my, my setup very simple. Um, and, and part of that is just due to the fact that I'm like a survival instructor and I don't make a ton of money. So my gear budget isn't super duper high. Um, and I, I like to save that extra money I do have and spend it on gas to go hunting. Um, I really, I really, um, prefer to have opportunity rather than like a bunch of gear right. that I don't get to use very much. Um, I'd love to have the gear, but I don't. So I have nice, you know, nice stuff, but, um, I'm definitely not like using a Swarovski spotting scope and, and, and things of that nature. Um, nothing wrong with that. If I had the money, I'd buy one. So yeah, I'm real passionate about, about deer, hogs and turkeys, specifically hogs and, uh, and blacktail deer. Um, and those are the two animals that I think I probably know the most about. Um, and, and I definitely spend, you know, hours every day thinking about them. Um, I'm super fascinated with wild hog behavior, their scent marking behaviors, um, tracking them, you know, uh, like cutting a fresh trail and following it to the animal. Um, which a friend of mine, Preston Taylor just published a book. He's a bear hunter and a biologist in Northern California. It's called tracking the American black bear. And he, he regularly like (laughs) goes out just during the week and will track bears within like 10 feet of them just for fun Nice. and, uh, in elk. And he's an amazing tracker, probably one of the best in, in, in the U S. Um, anyways, yeah. So I'm really, really, really passionate about learning the animals that I'm hunting. And, uh, and I spend a lot, probably, you know, more time just watching them than I do actually taking shots. And, and I think that's what I like about the traditional equipment is it's forced me to do that. Um, and a lot of times, you know, for me, like my, my shots, I killed both of my deer last year at sub 10 yards. Um, most of the pigs I kill are under 20 yards. Um, and most of the turkeys are like six feet, you know? Um, and, and I don't necessarily pride myself on that. That's just how I set up for it. Right. There's a lot of skill involved in any distance of shot. Um, but I like to get close because to me that adds to the challenge and it, and it's taught me a lot. Um, for me, a big part of the philosophy for me was just like learning through failure. And so going out there and, and pushing myself and blowing stocks. I mean, man, if I could, if I could shoot out to 40, 
I already do have too much pig meat more than I can eat, you know, but, uh, at this point I, I, I gift a lot of it away and I've got friends who are like, who practically get all their pig meat because I give it to them, you know, I'll be like, Hey, I got a hog as a gift for you. Um, so I share it with the community for sure. And, and, and friends of mine who really appreciate it and eat it. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'd just stop hunting if I could take shots that far, not stop for good, but like I would have been done a lot earlier right. as uh, I would have filled my tags and, and, you know, it's just like, cause I put that much time in. And so for me, you know, usually I'm hunting like a hundred plus days a year. Um, honestly over a hundred days, like full days in the field. Um, so I, I count it. I, I keep a journal, um, every hunt I go on, I, I write notes about the weather. I write notes about my observations. I keep a pretty detailed journal about all of my encounters. And I found that to be really helpful because, you know, the last seven years of keeping that detailed journal, you know, now I can revisit, you know, opening day of a zone or opening weekend. And I can look back at all the weather patterns, the trends, what I saw, like all that information and historical data has taught me so much. Um, so I'm definitely a big believer in that woodsmanship and, and developing that regardless of the weapon you use. Like, I mean, rifle hunting is super attractive to me and, um, and I just don't put in enough time with my weapon to really feel confident. You know what I mean? But that's something that in the future, I, I'd love to get uh, a better rifle than I have. I have an old Remington seven millimeter mag, um, and it's a real pain in the butt to shoot literally, uh, a lot of rounds through cause it'll blow my shoulder off, but, um, a little overkill, but, uh, yeah, you know, I, that's something that's super attractive to me and, and, um, learning your weapon and, and kind of this idea of mastery, like all that stuff. I don't think about it in that way just when I'm like talking with you right now, but, but that's what I do find super attractive. And, and I, I do, I put in a lot of hard work to uh to fill my tags and it goes back to that that appreciation and and respect for being a woodsman um yeah that's that's all building on that right every every experience out there that you're talking about is building on that on that craft and that's what it is really what's uh yeah it's it's a craft you develop and yeah there's some great books about that too of folks that i really looked up to um and, and you could link them in the show notes, but, uh, the old, old books about, uh, the lion hunter, Jim Corbett and the tiger hunter, you know, back in the day in India and, in different spots, you know, he was, he was the guy who was tasked with going out and hunting the tigers that, you know, some of these tigers would kill, like I'm talking like hundred plus people, mm-hmm. like climbing in through windows, one tiger one tiger doing all of that. And so he'd be the guy who'd be out there hunting the tiger and tigers are notorious for like coming back on the cutting back on their trail and literally tracking the person that's tracking them and camouflaging their trail and using all these crazy, uh, basically escape and evasion techniques. And so his books are incredible because he was doing that back in like, I don't know, like, uh, early 1900s or something like that, late 1800s. So he really exemplifies that woodsmanship skill and his respect for his prey and and learning about it. And, uh, yeah, I just love that part about it, but I also just, I I love everything about hunting. I, you know, I don't just cause I shoot trad. I think guys get this idea that a lot of trad guys really rip on like the hunting culture or compound guys. And, um, you know, that that's not the case, uh, all the time. Um, and there's, I don't think your weapon defines 
you. Right. Um, I think the choices you make with it are what define you. And, it, and you know, if you're losing, I think it just comes down to, to you know, it's how much time you put in with your tool and, and how you use it. Um, so, yeah, just, just in case anyone was wondering, you know, I'm not like some, I'm a hardcore trad guy for sure, but, uh, I'm certainly not, a not out there, you know, bashing every Trad's guy snob. shooting compound. Cause <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of, there's, there's plenty of guys shooting, you know, rifles that I really look up to and whatever it is, there's, it doesn't, your weapon doesn't define you. And it's just the experience in the field that really defines you. So, you know, you, you talked about the pigs being, you know, something that you enjoy pursuing and, and it always, California is underrated, right? And, and when people start talking about yep. chasing hogs and, and some of that could be, you know, people, oh, I don't want to go to California to hunt. But when you look at the opportunity for pigs here in California, it's phenomenal, man. I mean, on public land and, and I've seen it go in cycles every five or six years. Oh, yeah. We'll get this boom of hogs. Right. And, and a lot of times they'll be, you know, tucked up on private. But when you get that five to six year cycle coming in and I think we're probably a year and a half into it now. Dude, the public land yep. hog hunting is, in my opinion, second to none in terms of numbers oh, yeah. and opportunity. It's phenomenal, man. Um, I know you're going to. Yeah. in California is just such a sleeper state. Like, oh, dude, it's all political. Why most guys don't want to come to California. And sometimes that just bums me out. Like people just rip on. It's like I know uh, folks just rip like i don't put myself out there partially because oh, like that. i've just gotten hate from being from california <laughs> like if i post a picture of a heart of a gripping grin of mine on a on a facebook page and on a stick bow facebook page or, or trad fit page like and say like oh you know tagged out california or whatever like i'll get way le like if anything i'll get mostly i'll get a lot of negative comments and i'll get a lot less you know like it's just it's crazy i've d did a little study but I i've gotten so much hate and indirect hate and just people just not just not wanting to have anything to do with you because of where you're from that i just gave up on it you know but it's an amazing state like the bear situation here is incredible oh, most guys have no idea yep. um you know, for a long time, the record black bear was taken out of Mend Mendocino, I believe. Um, the bear hunting is incredible. The pig hunting is incredible. The turkey hunting might be some of the best uh, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of incredible opportunity. And it's just, you know, we have elk, we have animal, we have, a, we, it's all here. Yeah. A lot of it, you got to spend your lifetime trying to draw or have a bunch of money. But um, they are all here. And with pigs, it's like they do definitely go in cycles. I, I know that up North, you know, um, Northern California, like Sonoma, Napa, Mendo, that whole area, they had a big, they've, they had some issues with, I, I had heard through a friend of mine, potentially pseudo rabies, which is like a respiratory issue, which kills pigs. And that might be one of the reasons that they've had issues population wise, um, the last, you know, three or four couple years. Um, but the rest of the state, we don't have that yet. And our populations are booming. Oh, dude, it's unreal. Right and I, I don't know about where you're at, but I know for me, it's crazy. It's In Monterey stupid. County, it's like off the hook. Well, Mon and Monterey see, County yeah. for 15, 20 years has been the number one county for pigs in the state. I mean, that's, that's held yeah. true for, man, so, so long. So my pig area is bordering Monterey and King. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's probably the same area that I 
uh, go through as well. And, uh, man, it's been good. Yeah. Last few years. And, um, it's, uh, it's been good all over though, you know, like Monterey South, um, all that whole area has, has, uh, including, you know, even like Lake Sonoma, I think's taken a hit cash. There's a lot of like public spots. They're huge spots. I don't feel bad naming them. Um, but, uh, the populations have definitely taken a big hit up there. Um, and so there's been, you know, I, I, hog hunting is a funny thing because a lot of guys just think there's no pigs on public land. All um, there. Yeah. and you kind of got to learn, you got to learn and you got to put in your time for sure. Right. But like, if you put in the time, you'll, you'll find them. them. Yeah. It's just, uh, you don't have to go pay and do an outfitted hunt every time you want to kill a pig. Like you can go and you can figure it out and, it'll pay off for you in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you and, find and them, so, once you find them, it's a repeat scenario. Now you figure out that cycle, but once you're in them, that cycle may drop down, right? You may be on the bottom end of that cycle, but I guarantee if you keep at it and you follow that cycle back around, you're going to be in those pigs again. They, they, they're just so, ah, just for the lack of a better word, they're, they're so normal. It's, it's just the normalcy in, in that cycle for me, at least. Um, yeah, it's just like, yeah, there's pigs there. <laughs> you know yeah, what I they mean? Can, they can get habituated <laughs> to a routine for sure. Oh, and man. I think food source is like a big deal. And we've had these big acorn master ears, which is, um, yeah, giant. And that really helps, you know, and it, what I've noticed too, I do a lot of I do a lot of hunting around wallows and I run a lot of cameras around wallows mm-hmm. and I've kind of been studying wallow usage, um, intentionally just to sort of kind of see how hogs use wallows and how, you know, cause you know, pigs are matriarchal groups, right? For the most part, the sounders are matriarchal groups that are run by a lead sow. And so the biggest pig in that group, unless she's in heat or there's a boar, coming into breeder that's a lead sow and she makes all the decisions for that group and everyone in that group is her relative or her offspring right and so those are those big groups you see of like the squeakers or the schrotes or like the younger piglets um and then the adolescents and then the lone boars are where it gets really crazy because what i've found is killing lone boars if there's a guy who's consistently knocking down big old boars, then you know you, you've got it figured out mm-hmm. because finding those big old boars during the day is tough. Nightmare. And they're the ones who don't always follow a cycle. Um, they, they're typically coming and going depending on if a sow's in heat or not. And so um, it's really, it's been really interesting studying, you know, different like how marking behaviors, whether it's foam from their mouth that they're rubbing on a tree um, or whether it's, you know, different scent glands, they do leave scrapes just like all other animals. And, and I'm sure you've seen that when they kind of kneel, kneel down, bend down and they rub their paws in the ground. That's, that's a, that's a scent marking behavior that the boars use. And so there's a lot of communication bet- between them. And it's just, for me, what's helped me a lot is learning a lot about tracking because for pigs specifically, and I think bears too, but for pigs specifically, like the ability to identify sign and age it correctly is, is a game changer, right? Like how many times have you seen like pig tracks and you're like, ah, uh, if I could know when those were made, it would really help me know like if I'm using my time here right. good or not. Yep. Um, and so that's been a game changer for me, I know. And and I think pigs are the best way to become a, an excellent tracker. Um, but that's cool to hear that we probably have potentially hunted in some, some of the same spot, areas. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, so that's really neat. Heck yeah, man. 
Um, so why don't we why don't we drop uh, the dot com? Uh, I think we did it, but let's oh. do it and uh, get a wrap on it, man. Anything you know, if folks want to reach out to you, um, and if they want to yeah. talk to you about a course. Yeah. So um, if anyone is interested, so. The pr- I teach for a number of different organizations and I have my own company as well. And, um, if someone wants to come and, and just like take a one day class and learn about shelter, water, fire, food, um, in there by themselves. Right. And they don't, they can't put a group together to book me. Um, the best way to do that is, is through a company called adventure out and, and I run all their survival programs and you just sign up for that one day wilderness survival class. We run them in the Santa Cruz mountains and then also up North in Marin County. And so, um, yeah, there's a couple opportunities. Now, if you have more than like a couple people and you want to put something together, you can just contact uh, me directly and you could either contact me through my website, which is jackharrisonsurvival.com or jackharrisonsurvival on Instagram. And you can get in touch with me and we can set something up. Um, you know, I can travel to you. You could travel to me. We could work it out. Um, and we can really cater it around what you want to learn. Um, whether that's like you bring all your, your hunting equipment with you or your pack and your, your basic gear. And when we go through all of that, and, you know, talk about utilizing and building shelters with that or without that, how you could cannibalize certain items without actually doing it, you know, just kind of all the versatile versatility and usage and maybe where the weak points are in that system. Um, you know, I'm happy to do something like that or whatever it might be, whether it's animal tracking, whether it's, uh, you name it. So I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, um, whether it's just a group of friends or, you know, whether I've worked with a lot of search and rescue organizations. So if, if somebody is, you know, uh, their current like president or organizer of their search and rescue volunteer organization within their County, or there's a lot of different subsects of search and rescue. Um, but, and they want to organize something, you know, they, they're more than happy to come out and, and do a seminar or talk or whatever it is. So just reach out to me and, and whether you got questions or anything like that, let me know. I'd be happy to help anyone out. Um, yeah, the more I can and help people get outside and learn about this stuff, the the happier I am. I def- I certainly am not in it to uh, make a whole bunch of money or something like that. I'm I'm in it to change people's lives and and hopefully help them see and experience some of the awesome, amazing things that I've gotten to experience. And uh, I guess I'll just end by saying, like, the freedom of knowing and having those skills is just amazing and it'll change the way that you hunt it'll change the way that you approach areas and i can just promise you that learning about the the ecology of an area learning about your own survival skills how you can utilize that that nature of the ecology and the plants and the animals to stay alive if you had to but ultimately just like learning that place and becoming another animal in that place I can just guarantee you that in the long run, that's just going to change everything. Um, and, it, and if there's one place to put time and energy into, it's there. Because that's where the magic happens. Heck yeah, brother. So Jack, Jack Harris, I see I wanted to do it again. Do it again, man. <laughs> you got to remember it like, uh, like John, my real, yeah, so... Like the president, John Harrison. There you go. So you just say Jack Harrison. Yeah, dude, I don't Jackson's know what it is. fine too. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Jack Harrison. No, I'm yeah. sorry, bro. Jack Harrison no, survival.com. Uh, and then just uh, Jack 
Harrison on Instagram. You guys check him out. This is a lifelong pursuit, right? This is, you know, from, from 10 years old to, you know, now in the, in the thirties, this is a passion. Uh, and it's not taken yep. lightly. You guys, uh, give Jack yeah. a shout. If you have any questions, man, I appreciate the times. Awesome conversation. We'll definitely have to do it again. Cause I got some other stuff that didn't really tie into this. So we'll maybe do a part two after, uh, maybe after season there Anytime. and, and start talking yeah. about, you know, what skills to brush up on, um, for folks. And, uh, yeah, man, I appreciate it. Thank you greatly. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, anytime you want to do a part two, just let me know and we'll make it happen. Absolutely, brother. You have a great one, man. Best of luck uh, in A-Zone and whatever else uh, you're out there pursuing this year, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Good luck to you, too. We'll have to talk. We'll have to share uh, share some stories here soon. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Follow Western Contours on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, and sign up at westerncontours.com. Episodes are available on most major platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.